Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. everybody welcome to episode 18 of the knife perspective podcast today we have walter sorrels on the podcast i'm really excited to have him and uh you'll notice dan isn't normally given the the intro today he is having his bicep reattached and uh he's uh currently uh doped up on a lot of painkillers. So that could be uh, some pretty good podcast content, but uh, he decided to forgo this one and uh, fly in solo tonight. So you'll get to get to hear me and Walter and hopefully everybody's uh, good with that. Uh, we have a new sponsor uh, for the podcast, Dragonfly Bladeworks. It's uh, one of our friends, John Kaufman. He's a, a very cool guy, works at Old Town Cutlery and has his own uh, knife business. He apprenticed under Fiddleback Forge and uh, his very cool handle pin out with a lot of eighth inch pins across the top spine and usually like a larger quarter or three sixteenths one at the bottom of the belly, which is super cool. Then you have uh, Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives sponsoring the podcast too. You can find our dealers, Old Town Cutlery, uh, Dogwood Custom Knives, Cage Daily Knives, and uh, Dragonfly Bladeworks. You can find them there at Old Town. And you can find Dan's Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center and the Knife House. Uh, the Knife House is still working on getting their website uploaded with knives and stuff to be able to purchase directly from their site. So, um some of you know that know people for one aspect of their life and they have an entirely different side too. I've always known him for his awesome YouTube videos as of this recording. He has 317 videos and 339,000 subscribers, which is absolutely crushing it. He puts out some of the best information and highest production value knife making videos that I've seen and have spent many hours watching his videos. In researching the podcast, found out he's written around 30 mystery and suspense novels. And I'm excited to know more about uh, Walter Sorrels. So, Walter, welcome to the to the podcast. Glad to be here, man. Excited to hear some of your stuff. We'll jump into some of our shout outs. A lot of you guys probably follow 5054 on Instagram. He he does some awesome low layer Damascus. He has tons of smashy metal videos that are they're great to watch. When he was changing out one of his dies, he uh, smashed his finger and ended up losing the the two joints on his right index finger. Uh, luckily, he didn't lose more, and he seems to be in pretty good spirits about the whole thing. Uh, so definitely check him out. I know he's going to be doing a uh, big raffle-type thing to raise some money to help with his medical bills. Right when it happened, TNT Forge, one of the other guys that um, uses a lot of his Damascus, uh, had one extra billet and was making a knife to raffle off to help with his medical medical cost. Been thinking about it, and uh, I'm going to donate a knife and try to do the same thing. And our new sponsor, Dragonfly Bladebrook, said he'll be donating a knife for that raffle too. 
It'll be through the Knife Perspective Instagram. So uh, check that out. We'll also have it on Facebook. Try to promote it. Uh, I'm sure 5050 Forge will try to promote it some. So going to still work out the details on what knives we're going to give away, but hopefully help some of the, the knife making community with some medical costs that he's certainly going to have uh, being self-employed and that being his full-time gig. Uh, he's missing out on quite a bit of time in the shop. So hopefully all that goes well for you, Paxton, and we've been thinking about you a bunch. So Walter, where did you end up growing up? Well, that's a more complicated question than you might think, but uh, I grew up mostly in uh, Clemson, South Carolina. Uh, my dad was a college professor, uh, you know, when I was a early in my childhood. And, uh, so he taught at Clemson. Um, and, uh, you know, we traipsed around to various colleges over the years, uh, but mostly Clemson. That's very cool. So, uh, what was your first knife? Uh, the first one that I owned or the first one that I made. Let's go with the, the first one you remember having. Well, so when I was a little kid, probably eight years old, my dad gave me, a, you know, like a case knife or a Barlow knife, you know, some kind of little folding knife with a couple blades. And, uh, you know, now that's child abuse. But, uh, of course, <laughs> uh, any sane parent really should be given knives to their kids as early as they seem, re- you know, smart enough to use them. I, you know, I'm, I'm really this is kind of my little crusade thing, but I, I truly believe that knives represent the most powerful aspect of the human soul. You know, that a knife is something that gives you agency. It gives you power. It gives you a capacity to go out and change the world. And this whole idea that we can protect kids, that we can bubble wrap everything, it's a terrible, terrible disservice to to children, to society. Um, I didn't mean to start out so heavy, but it really, you know, <laughs> it just, it pisses me off that like, if you hand a, a paring knife to a kid now, you know, there's some, there's some woman that's going to be looking at you side eyes, you know, like you're, you're trying to kill your child. It just drives me bananas. So anyway, off the soapbox there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, knives are such a great thing. So I totally agree. One of my boys, I have twin boys that are three and a half, and uh, one of them is showing a bunch of interest in it. And we got him um, uh, some plastic uh, kind of serrated knives. Uh, still a little uh, worried about him not quite paying attention enough for a real one, but have his. Uh, he's got his plastic knives, and they're they're sharp enough. He helps uh, cut up the the ham and different stuff we make for breakfast and uh, shrimps and different things. So. He's uh he's quite a bit of help in the kitchen. Some of the vegetables aren't quite as neatly cut, but definitely edible. I love it. That's the that's the way you learn. You know, you got to start someplace. Yeah, he was he's so so cute. You say, "Watch your fingers," and he goes, "Watch your fingers." <laughs> so pretty cool. So um, on the podcast, one of the other questions we usually ask all of our people is. How did you meet your wife where Dan's Dan met his wife and asked her out at her grandmother's wake? I met my wife on the uh, the Internet on eHarmony. Where does your story fall in that uh, spectrum? 
I'm afraid on the completely boring end, uh, we went in college, you know, we, uh, we lived, uh, in the same dorm. And, uh, so I, I kind of formally met her, I guess, on my 19th birthday. And, uh, you know, we kind of started going out a year or two after that and, uh, basically been together ever since. That's awesome. That's a, that's a cool story too. How are you able to balance your your work, family, uh, your knife making, your YouTube channel, and different things like that? Uh, very carefully. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I guess the, the one thing that's really great about having a job like knife making, um, where you're home all the time. You know, my wife was home most of the time uh, during my uh, son's childhood. He's in college now. But, uh, you know, when you set your own schedule, I, I mean, I went through periods where I worked absolutely insane hours. I mean, I probably went about 10 years where I was working, you know, 70 hours a week just routinely. And, you know, that wears on you. But at the same time, you know, if I wanted to go out and watch my kid's baseball game, I could. And I watched basically every game he ever played. And he played a hell of a lot of baseball games. So uh, just because you work a lot of hours, if you work for yourself, you still do have that opportunity to spend a lot of time with your family, which is really nice. Yeah, I don't do the the knife making thing full time. I'm a, an engineer for Navistar. They make international trucks, semis and school buses and uh, do the, the knife making thing on the side. So Usually once the, the boys uh, go to bed, then I head out to the garage or on Saturdays, usually try to get a, a little bit longer time working on knives. Well, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the, the writing thing, and I'll, I'll save you the trouble of asking the question, and I'll kind of explain uh, where, where the writing fit into my life and, and how this craziness of making knives started. I actually started out originally as a, as a writer. You know, I had a real job for a little bit. But uh, basically, you know, when my wife and I got married, as I said, we got married fairly young and my wife was going to grad school. And so I said, well, I tell you what, we were just about to get married, you know, and, and I said, well, I tell you what, I'll support you for the next two years in grad school if you will support me for two years after that. Uh, and I'll try to get this writing thing going because that was really what I wanted to do with my life. And so, you know, I... I uh, cranked away uh, after she got out of grad school and got her job. And um, I sold my first book, I think 21 months into the deal. So <clears throat> I was, uh, I was sweating bullets there towards the end of that two years. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I did. Uh, I wrote, um, I, I honestly, I couldn't even tell you how many books I've written. Uh, it sort of depends on how you do the math somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 35 books. Um, okay. so I was a big martial arts nut and, uh, because, you know, through the martial arts interest, I was also interested in Japanese culture and, you know, military weapons and so on. And, uh, so anyway, I was getting ready to write a book. This would have been right at 20 years ago. Well, probably, yeah, 21, 22 years ago. Uh, and the main character of the book was going to be a swordsmith. So, uh, I figured, well, you know, I should kind of get my hands, like get some tactile sense of what this means to be a swordsmith. So I got this little tiny piece of metal. I mean, it was, it was like, uh, you know, mild steel. It was about two inches long, half an inch wide. I don't even know what it was. 
I got a little Burns-O-Matic propane torch and a pair of pliers, and I held on to it with the pliers and heated it up, and it just like just barely got enough color in it that you could see it in a you know like in, in, in indoors. And I had a rock, and so I started hammering on it uh, on the rock, and you know the metal moved just the tiniest, tiniest little bit. But I was like this is great. I love this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so the rest is history. Very cool. Yeah. So the, you know, when you're, when you're doing martial arts, I think you, it's almost a requirement that you have to be a little bit into swords and all the other martial weapons too. Cause all that stuff is so cool, especially, uh, when you're, when you're growing up, you watch, or I watched the teenage mutant Ninja Turtles. So I was always, uh, super fascinated with all that stuff too. Well, I date myself, but the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were not even a, a gleam in anybody's eye when I was a kid. So. Yeah. I'm sure there was uh, different things back then. Oh, yeah. Bruce Lee and, you know, Kung Fu movies and all that stuff. Yeah. But uh, actually, I didn't have a TV when I was a kid. So uh, I always had to find other stuff to do, like throwing knives into trees until they fell over and stuff. But uh, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> that's pretty. So. Uh, so, yeah, I you know, I, I started out in um, in karate. I did that for quite a long time. But uh, I after I'd been doing karate for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, I started doing a Japanese sword style. And so I sort of started training with Japanese swords roughly at the same time that I started, um, uh, you know, making blades. And so I was able to learn a lot about the practical side of the Japanese sword, just because I was actually using them, chopping things up, practicing with them on a routine basis. And I think that really was a really important part of, of, you know, my whole conception of what making knives is all about. And I'll always tell anybody that, you know, my idea of making a knife always starts with practical stuff. I, you know, I, I'm not going to say I hate fantasy knives and all that kind of stuff, but I really feel like, look, if the thing won't cut, if it, you know, if it's shaped in a way that makes it so it's impossible to hold it without stabbing yourself and stuff, I, I that just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, for sure. So you got started making knives because of the, the the sword stuff for a book that you were trying to write. That was it exactly, and and so I I just you know I farted around with it a little bit, but you know I was doing research about it and start kind of starting to write the book, you know doing kind of book research about about knife making and Japanese swords and so on, but also starting to practically work on it. And, um, the first thing that I actually did, um, you know, I always tell people start small and, and I, you know, don't try and make Excalibur the first time you make a sword. And I say that from practical experience because I tried to make Excalibur right out of the box. You know, my, my the first thing that I did was, you know, I got this book about Japanese swords and I kind of leafed through it. I'm like, Oh, that looks like a cool sword. You know, and I, I took some, super famous sword. I don't even remember what it was. I remember the shape of it. I don't remember who, who forged the sword, but it's very old sword. I said, well, you know, I have no idea how you would go about making this. So I ordered a big old 
piece of 01 steel. I want to say it was like a quarter inch thick, three inches wide and, you know, 36 inches long or whatever. Wow. So I laboriously traced out on there the exact shape of this sword. And then I cut it out with a jeweler's file. And for anybody who has not had the pleasure of using jeweler's files on tool steel, it's it's not the ideal way of doing it. And it took me three days of sawing just to get that shape out. Wow. And I got done and I looked at it and, you know, like I didn't have a belt grinder. I didn't have a forge. I didn't have an anvil. Uh, I mean, I had absolutely nothing. I had a hacksaw, a jeweler's saw, a couple hammers. I mean, I had nothing. And I, I didn't have any experience, you know, with metal work or anything. And so uh, I looked at what I had done there after three days work. And I was just like, and actually, I think I took a file and I filed the bevels down on the whole thing. Um, so I, I turned it into a sword shape and I got done and I was just like, I have no clue what I'm doing and I have no business trying to make this thing. Like I just, I do not know what I'm doing. And so at that point I backed up, I said, okay, well let's, let's start trying to make some real simple stuff. And so that's when I actually made my first genuine knife and it was just the most pathetic, miserable little thing. You know, I, I actually got some knife making books at that point, and I tried this, you know, simplest kind of little knife. And again, I just made it with a file and a hacksaw. Um, so it just took forever, uh, but it was really, really horrible. Yeah, filing 01 sounds like a, a terrible way to go. Well, I, I mean, I mean, yes, it is. But here's the flip side. I really believe that, I mean, there, there are a lot of people who are like um, hobby whores, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, learn to play guitar this month and then next week they're uh doing uh you know ballroom dancing and then the week after that they're and you know they're always excited and it's going to be the greatest thing and they you know just kind of run around like chickens with their heads cut off and then they don't follow through on it Mm -hmm. which is fine you know it's just a hobby it just everybody should do what makes them happy but i i do feel like um we all at the end of you know at the end of our lives, we'd like to look back and say, hey, look, I really pursued something and did one thing pretty well. You know, so so for me, because I am a little bit of a hobby whore, you know, I do a lot of other stuff, too. And so I make myself prove the interest before I start spending money, you know. And so here's the kind of the point I was getting to is if you make yourself file a bunch of knives, not just one knife, but like five knives, just filing and filing and heat treat, you know, just like doing it all the wrong way. If you do that and spend however much time that it takes to go through that whole process of just killing yourself to get almost nothing, then I believe you're actually, you've prepared yourself mentally you know, to jump into something and really learn it. So I always recommend that, you know, you want to go out and learn how to make knives, you know, make a couple of them with a file and then you'll see if you're really serious or not. Yeah. I, uh, I jumped over that whole, uh, part with a file. I, I worked in a machine shop and stuff, so I had a bunch of metalworking experience. So yeah, see if, if, if people that, I mean, like there's some guys that come into this, you know, as machinists or, uh, you know, fabricators or whatever. And those guys don't need to waste their time doing that. They already understand stuff, but you know, yeah. people who are, who've just, uh, you know, their last hobby was ballroom dancing. <laughs> yeah. T- 
teach English or something, then, you know, you got, yeah, you've got to learn some stuff. <laughs> I've had a bunch of people asking me or ask me all sorts of questions and I, I inevitably get the, I've saved up $1,500. What the first equipment should I get? I'm like, uh, you should spend most of that money just learning if you want to actually do it, like go to an actual class or something like that and see, have, have someone that knows what they're doing, help you make one. And, uh, once you burn your fingers about a dozen times during that class, that usually makes a, a lot of people say, yeah, I don't think this is for me. Totally. Totally. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how many times I've, I've burnt my thumbs. There've been quite a few times where I've burned them so bad that I ended up having to wait a few days before I go back out and try it again. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I remember the first time that I went to like a blacksmithing convention or something like that. And I saw some experienced guys and they would always tap the, the iron with their fingers before they picked it up. You know, just like there's a piece of iron, they just tap it and then they would pick it up. And I always thought this was a slightly pretentious way of showing that you were, um, you know, that you were an experienced Smith, like, Oh, I'm not going to burn my fingers. You can see, cause I'm demonstrating my coolness here. And then, uh, one day I picked up a 700 degree piece of iron and the next day I found myself tapping all the stuff and I was like, okay, no, that my bad. Those guys were right. And I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, I was welding a bandsaw blade together and uh, I ground the, the ends of it flat and quite a bit hotter than I guess it probably should have been. And I put my thumb like right on it and uh, I, I could like hear my thumb sizzle on that one and <laughs> like it instantly blistered like crazy. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was, that was not a very good one. So uh, back to your, your books for a second. Are you still are you still writing novels in between all your YouTube stuff or are you kind of? No, no, I, I'm, I'm not. Uh, so so kind of to, to finish that whole uh, arc of, of my little life story there. Um, so I, I spent basically, what, 15 years, I guess, just writing. You know, what, what I always found happened was, I mean, after at least the first couple of years, I realized that like my brain would not function eight hours a day, um, writing novels, you know, I was super productive in the morning and then I didn't really get anything done in the afternoons. And I finally realized like, Oh, I should just do stuff in the afternoons. So as I started kind of shifting gears into knife making, I was still working my full regular writing schedule but then I would basically, so, you know, I'd basically work until two o'clock in the afternoon or something, do my workout, eat lunch or whatever it might be. And then I would start making knives. So, uh, you know, I just, at first it was mainly in kind of an obsessive thing. And then later on, my uh, wife got sick and, and was not uh, working. And so I was the sole source of income for the family for a good little while there. And, um, Writing is just one of these occupations that, you know, you might get a check for $5,000 or a check for $50,000 and then you get nothing for another six months. And you kind of never know whether if you get that $5,000 check, there's going to be another $5,000 the month later or you're just going to. And so I, just, you know, there were there were years in there where I was working full time that I just goose egged as a writer. Um, and it, a lot of it has to do with the timing of contracts and all kinds of stuff. So you may be getting published and all that, but the money just goes up and down, up and down, up and down. It's really, really frustrating. 
at a certain point, I realized there was kind of a clientele for the work that I was doing, and mainly in the Japanese sword realm. So, you know, I just, I just start killing myself and, you know, I just start working in the afternoons. And a lot of times I'd keep going until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. I'd work every weekend and it just, it was, it was kind of a, it was just bad really <laughs> to be honest with you. You know, I was making videos at a certain point. I mean, I was just, I was doing a lot of stuff and, you know, you just, you can't work crazy, crazy, crazy hours just year after year after year without it paying, you know, taking a toll on you. Mm -hmm. And, um, also, you know, kind of at the same time, my writing career was sort of evolving or devolving into, um, I was doing a lot of ghost writing, which is, you know, basically I'd write the book, but somebody else's name would go on it. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of different processes, by which that happens. And sometimes the person whose name is on it, you know, maybe is some Hollywood guy who is really a full participant in the project, or he might even be driving the project and I'm kind of doing the day-to-day -day work. Or sometimes basically they just sign their name to it at the end and I do all the work. And it, it really just depended from job to job. But over time, I just I felt like I was having less and less control over the product that I was putting out. And you know, and on top of this really, really brutal work schedule, I just, I just wasn't happy with it. You know, and at a certain point I was just like, you know what, I, I'm taking a break from writing and I'm just going to do the knife making thing full time. Cause that's something I can completely control. It's just my thing. And I don't have to worry about some dude in New York or Los Angeles changing his mind about something and creating another three months of work for me that I'm not going to get paid for, which, you know, was the kind of thing that used to happen when I was writing. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I was more cut out to be a knife maker or writer, but uh, I, I'm certainly um, mentally, ha you know, just kind of happier in the, in the situation these days than I was, you know, 10 years ago. Awesome. So how long have you actually been doing the knife making thing full time? Gosh, it's been about five years now. And I, and I'm, I mean, I have to say, realistically, I, I've been doing it full time for 15 years um, mm -hmm. because, you know, in, in truth, I was working 40 hour weeks starting really around uh, probably 2004 thereabouts. Um, okay. But because yeah, I, re I remember starting to watch your videos around 2010 quite a bit with one of my coworkers that kind of got me into uh, – going to my first blade show really sent me over the edge to, I want to give this a, give this a go. Well, I apologize. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sorry I sent well, you on this course. Yeah. The, the Wayne Goddard $50 knife shop book and oh, yeah. watching, oh, yeah. watching some, what, what tools do you need at the beginning videos that you did and that, uh, I was like, man, a lot of those things from working in the machine shop are things that I want to have just regardless. Cause, uh, I like to bake things. I like to, um, I like being able to be a little more self-reliant instead of having to go over to my friend's house or find somebody and say, Hey, can you, uh, can you cut this piece of wood for me? <laughs> right. Right. So, right. so what's yeah. your favorite tool? Um, I actually really like the disc grinder. I have a nine inch disc grinder with the Nielsen disc system. So it's a magnetic plate and you have these uh, steel plates you can put on. And um, 
I do mainly a lot of tall kitchen knives and that helps me get a get a really consistent distal taper going to the tip and get the the whole bevel really flat huh so i really like that nielsen disc system because you can um i have some with uh that uh, 3m feathering adhesive on it so that i can trim the 9 by 11 sheets of paper and then i have some other discs that i used with the psa pressure sensitive adhesive mm-hmm. uh glue on them so that makes it makes it really easy to to switch between all the grits and if you have one that's not quite fully used up you're not trying to save it or slowly take it off and then it rip on you You can just pull the whole plate right off and slap another plate on there you know that's one of the coolest things about knife making is that people go about it in such different ways i mean people are constantly like I, I mean, I, I had no real concept of uh, this whole approach to, to making knives uh, that you're that you're describing here. And um, I'm constantly hearing from, you know, like these guys that make knives with angle grinders and stuff like mm-hmm. it's just it's amazing how many different ways you can do this same thing and end up with something really beautiful at the end of it. That's it's a testament to human ingenuity, you know. Yeah, I still use my two by seventy two quite a bit, but uh, one of the one of the pieces of equipment that I just got recently is a surface grinder attachment for my two by seventy two grinder, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't really plan on using it much for grinding my blades, but I'm maybe a little too OCD about having my my actual handle blanks, but when I glue them on, be the the same thickness and parallel and everything but i can uh use some two-sided tape and stick that to a piece of metal and stick it on there and then um i used it for the first time the other day and i had the the pieces of uh wood flat and parallel within about three thousandths in less than three minutes and that would have taken me like an hour before yeah, I was going to say, you probably got that done in about eight seconds. That sounds like a great way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was really good. I'm going to definitely have to take some pictures of it and stuff. It's uh, the surface grinder attachment that I got from uh, it's a company called Black Fox One. Mm-hmm. And he does Black Fox grinders. And he has these uh, magnets that they're like the, the ones for magnetic indicator bases where you right. can turn the knob and they turn on and off. Right. Um, so that. That's really nice. A lot of the other ones have permanent magnets that you have to really slide on and off that are uh, pretty powerful. But 90-degree turn, and the thing pops right off, and away you go. That's that's a nice idea. Yeah, because when you get those big magnets on those things, it is a chore getting stuff off. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite uh, piece of equipment in the the knife shop? Well, I you know probably uh, probably the mill, um, but also the belt grinder. I mean, you know the the cool thing for for any of your listeners who still haven't got a high quality belt grinder, um, it really is just one of the sad things about making knives that they just are great pieces of equipment, and and you really if you've been using other kinds of things, little, you know, one by 42s and things like that, uh, it, it just, you know, allows you to increase your productivity so much. But once you, and I was super scared of it when I first got it, you know, I got my, uh, Bader probably almost 20 years ago now. And I remember just how scared I was of the thing when I first used it. But then, you know, after a certain point, 
I mean, like I could make a jet engine out of the thing now, you know, it's just like you get so good with it. You can just do so many things. And it's kind of amazing just like how many goofball things. I mean, like I sharpen pencils on it, you know, (laughs) like it just it's like, hey, I can do it faster that that way than finding a pencil sharpener, you know. And uh, I mean, there's so many things you can do with a belt grinder that you just would never have conceived of before you use it for a while. Yeah. And it's amazing how many attachments and stuff they make for them. Now the, I've got a rotary platen with a, like a belt behind it and you can adjust the, the tension of that, the slack belt and different size wheels, small wheel attachments and all the different things. It's really, really amazing how many, how many things is out there for them. Yeah. I mean the, the surface grinder attachments to me are, I mean, I've got a surface grinder, so I don't need one, but to me, that's one of the smartest little gizmos that you can attach to. And I, you know, really, if, if I were getting a grinder today, knowing what I know, I mean, I would just price that into the, the price of whatever I was getting. Cause those are super handy. Yeah. I wish when I built my two by 72, a lot more of the the grinders that you could flip horizontal would have been out. I would have loved to have a grinder that you can flip horizontal for, especially for the surface grinder attachment, not having to go up and down. Right. That gets a little, your arms get a little tired if you start uh, going for too long. Yeah, I can imagine. So what are, what are some of your influences on your knife design? You said you, you do a lot of swords and I've, I know you do a lot of like uh, kind of everyday carry, not quite bushcraft, but a little more utilitarian. What, do, what are some of the things that influence you most on your designs? Yeah. So I kind of am schizophrenic in terms of what I do. I, uh, for those people who are not familiar with my, my stuff, um, you know, I started out doing Japanese swords and that was really kind of my main, uh, gig for a long time. But I, I sort of had this idea. I, I just was having trouble getting as much for a sword as the amount of time that goes into it. If you haven't made a Japanese sword, you just, you just don't have a clue how long it takes to make those things. So you have to ask huge amounts of money for it not to be, uh, you know, basically uh, that you're donating the sword to whoever buys it. So, you know, my theory was, oh, I should get out there and start making some um, some more utilitarian kind of knives. And I kind of went down that path a little bit, trying to make them um, on my belt grinder, doing everything kind of the conventional way. And I just realized, like, economically, it just didn't make any sense. Um, and I didn't really want to just water jet, you know, 80 knives at a time. And so um, I kind of put that on the back burner. Um, But then later on, um, I saw, you know, some stuff on YouTube or what. In fact, I I guess it was, um, uh, shoot, what's his name? Um, Grismo. Um, You okay? So uh, I saw a bunch of his videos where he was using a CNC machine. And I was like, 
oh man, I just it, ne it never occurred to me that you could get a CNC that was small enough to put in your garage and that wasn't going to cost industrial type money. And so I got a Tormach a few years back, and that's really what set me off on the uh, Tactics Armory line. So I have you know TacticsArmory.com is my uh, website for the production type stuff, and those are like you say, just very very utilitarian knives. So the whole idea of those is not that they look really jazzy or that they're crazy, you know, unique, uh, that, but they're super functional. That's the whole point is for them to just be really, really no knives basically. Um, and then on the Japanese side, I do basically pretty traditional stuff. So the, all the sh shapes in terms of design are completely traditional. Um, and you know, I'm just kind of trying to stay in that general Japanese tradition. So there's nothing, you know, on the design side, that's really novel there at all. Yeah. Well, those are, there's a reason why those shapes uh, became some of the most popular because they work really well. That's it. So uh, one of the questions we got from a, from a listener, Ben Palmer is going to probably be a reoccurring one for a lot of our makers is how do you make your knives stand out? He, uh, he messaged us and said, he's had a lot of people that like his knives and say they look cool, but uh, they're having trouble pulling the trigger. Have you, do you have any advice for uh, someone that's uh, no. got a lot of people that like them and no, I, I, I really don't. Be, are, you, are you talking about from kind of a marketing standpoint or um, in terms of like making the shapes unusual or whatever? I think he, he seems to have some like pretty standard or some, some pretty good looking shapes. Um, he's, but he said he's just having lots of people say they really like him, but he's having trouble getting them to put down money for him. Well, I, I mean, you know, any kind of business – has two sides to it. I mean, manufacturing business. And this is, even though you're just one dude at the beginning, uh, you're still a manufacturer. You're just like Ford, you know, and a lot of guys are really into the making side and they don't recognize or they resent the idea that it's a business that requires them to be a marketing guy, a sales guy, uh, a shipping guy, an answer the phone guy, do email guy, social, social media. Yeah. Social media <laughs> is huge, obviously. Um, and you know, anytime you make something, there are going to be people who say, Oh, that's cool, man. I love that. You know, my mom would love that. My, Hey, my buddy, you know, he's always wanted, but they don't actually buy anything. And, and it's not, and, and sometimes it feels a little frustrating, but you, what you come to realize is that a lot of times people say that they like something just because, you know, they're being nice to you. And I, I don't mean that in the sense of being patronizing. I just mean, you know, they're trying to be supportive of you and say, oh, that's fantastic. Look at that great knife. You know, that doesn't mean they want to buy it. Mm -hmm. And And the reality of selling anything, I don't care if you're selling potato chips or what, is you just got to keep banging on the wall. And if you don't do that, then interest in your stuff dries up, people don't buy, and it's just a numbers game. Mm. It, you know, you're, you're not going to sell to everybody who likes a knife. They don't necessarily have enough money. They don't have enough attention. They already have too many knives. Uh, you know, their wife controls the budget. Uh, it could be a million things. And and so, you know, uh, just because somebody wants your knife doesn't mean that uh, it's going to 
result in money in your pocket. So you just got to keep hammering away. Yeah. It's uh, some good advice. As Joe Dirt says, keep on, keep it on. Oh yeah. The, I love that movie. Uh, what are, what are some of your favorite knife steels that you, you use the most? Uh, on the Japanese side, um, I do actually make some tamahagane, the traditional Japanese style uh, steel. So aesthetically, you know, just to look at something really cool, that's the coolest stuff ever. It's just amazingly beautiful, but it's it's insanely labor intensive. Um, so I only do a very small amount of that because you know not everybody wants to spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars on a sword. Uh, so on the on the more practical side. Um, W2 is, is kind of my go-to steel for swords, but on, you know, the stainless steel side, I, I mostly work with, uh, S30V, you know, it's just a real reliable do all kind of steel. I mean, there, you know, a lot of guys that are going for higher and higher vanadium type steels and stuff. And some of those are trickier to heat treat and they take forever to, to grind. And so I, I've worked with S30V for a good little while and it's, you know, it holds a really good edge and, you know, kind of does what I like most of the, uh, most of the time. So that's kind of my go-to thing. I got some other things that I work with occasionally, but that's, that's really my main thing these days. Very cool. I like the, the one fifty four CM. That's what my favorite for stainless, stainless okay. knives. Um, uh, I pretty much do, or I haven't made other than some Alabama Damascus, uh, knives. I, I pretty much all my knives have been either D two or one fifty four CM. D two is a great steel. I mean, it's kind of an underrated steel and I, I, or I don't know if underrated is it's an overlooked steel these days, but I, I, I think, it's because it's kind of neither fish nor fowl. It's not really a stainless steel, but it's not, um, you know, you have to do everything that you have to do to it. Stainless steel anyway. And, um, I, I love D2. Yeah. That's what they make a lot of the, the sheer blades and stuff that's cutting metal all day, every day. Right. So, um, but for my kitchen knives, I like to have a little bit more corrosion resistance. So sure. use the 154. Right. What's your favorite knife? either production or custom last, uh, your own knives and then, uh, other so people's knives. I, I have an embarrassing confession, which is that I'm just not really a knife guy in that sense. I don't collect knives. I don't, you know, I'm not running around at the blade show buying all these guys knives. It's just, I've never been a collector, you know, the old saying, beware of the man with one gun. Cause he probably knows how to use it. Um, I, I'm kind of of that mindset. Um, I mean, I actually, I do compete in, uh, pistols shooting competitions in, uh, in IDPA for, which is, uh, wow. international defensive pistol association for people who aren't gun nuts. Um, and I'm just one of those guys that like, I settled on a gun that I liked and I mean, I've put, you know, over a hundred thousand rounds through that one gun. I never buy any more guns cause that one works. So <laughs> that's, you know, that's kind of my approach. I mean, literally all I've carried are my own knives for, you know, 10 or 15 years now. Okay. So what's, what's your favorite, uh, knife model that you make? Uh, probably the, no, not probably the shadow is the one that I, uh, carried a fixed blade knife for a long time. And that I've got one, um, a folder now called the X and I'm on my Mark two model of that. 
uh, right now, which I should be actually selling pretty soon within the next few weeks. Uh, and that's what I've been carrying for the last uh, year and a half or so is just the, my folders. So have you been using the, the Tormach to help with that a lot? <laughs> To, to make yeah, the yeah. Knife, I mean, or? it's you know, there would be no folding knife business for me um, without the Tormach. If you're, uh, you know, because I'm not one of those guys who I, 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 I'm just I'm not interested in making a seventeen hundred dollar showpiece. You know, that's just that's not where my mind is. I I think it's really cool that people do that. But you know, kind of historically, the guys who made folding knives, I mean, they're very very there's just a lot of work that goes into them and everything's got to be right. So <clears throat> it just takes to, to make them the traditional, you know, doing it with a manual mill and grinding them by hand and all that stuff. I mean, you just have to put hours and hours and you got to price them really high. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just, that's not what I'm aiming to do. Um, so yeah, without the Tormach, you could forget making, uh, for, I mean, with my kind of business model, you could forget, um, making the folding knives. Yeah. I went to FabTech here in Chicago, uh, a couple weeks ago and, uh, stopped by the Tormach booth and they've got some, some pretty nice looking stuff there. So I've been, I'm out of room in my sh in my garage, so if uh, if I want to get any any bigger, I kind of need to to rearrange some stuff or figure out what uh, what I'm going to do. The table saw, bandsaw, all that stuff takes up room in a two car garage. Yeah, I know that story, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I had to sacrifice all the carpentry tools. The, that stuff's all hidden away and up in the rafters and stuff. So it's all metalworking stuff now. I don't have a single woodworking tool other other than the bandsaw uh, that's accessible to me anymore. You know, I, I had to move a lot of stuff around to get that Tormach into my uh, shop, but. Um, I, I love it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, some hundred thousand dollar Haas or whatever, and it has limitations, but you know, I've seen people, Oh, that's just a toy or something. No, man, that is not a toy. Let me tell you, you can, you can do real work on those things. Mm. Yeah. It might just take a little bit longer, but you can get it, get it done. Right. Right. Exactly. And you know, it's just, you know, a large part of, Knife, uh, I mean, of using mills, CNC mills especially, is fixturing. And so you have to think really carefully through all the fixturing uh, before you can, you know, move a single chip. It just, it takes a lot of work to, to do that part. And, but if you do it smartly, then, you know, the rest of the stuff will fall into place okay. Yeah. And if, uh, and you got to, with that fixturing, you got to remember with those CNCs that it's, uh, it's around the part I've seen. I love watching those uh, videos on YouTube and Instagram and stuff where they're cutting this thing out and then it just like runs the end mill right, <laughs> right across one of the hold downs. And oh, yeah. uh, it's like, yeah, I've had stuff like that happen. Like say a lot of four letter words. Well, you know, I don't, I don't think you can do CNC without a pretty good stock of four letter words. Cause I, I I mean, you know, occasionally I see these guys that do this, you know, aerospace stuff and all that on on YouTube or whatever, and they're doing these really, really complicated parts out of very, very expensive material. And I just think, like, I could just never do that. It's not that I don't understand how to do it, but doing, you know, 29 different operations on one thing 
mm-hmm. and getting it right the first the first shot so you don't you know throw away twelve thousand dollars worth of titanium no it just um, i don't have the mind (laughs) yeah at fabtech they had a bunch of five axis mills and stuff and what those things can do like twisting and having all those things rotate and move at the same time it's just it's really cool oh it's it's amazing it's amazing there were a ton of cnc lasers there this year that that's one of the things that's always kind of blown my mind there the lasers are getting so much more powerful and so much, or they're really driving the the price down on them. Uh, laser cutting, I think is going to be something that'll be a lot more affordable here soon. Well, I mean, there's so much amazing stuff happening, you know, just in general CAD cam world. I mean, you've got additives manufacturing of various sorts, subtractive, um, you know plasma lasers all these things you know anything that you can do to a chunk of metal you can stick a computer and a stepper motor on the other end of it and then start doing incredibly precise complicated stuff you know so mm-hmm. uh, i mean really that if you're if you're into knife making now i just feel like it's it's not a matter of like oh you have to get on board with this stuff or whatever but it's just if if you are interested in going in the direction of you know small nimble manufacturing i mean there's so much stuff going on the prices are coming down the power of the software is going up i mean it's it's astonishing what you can do now and it's only going to get better yeah um yeah, I'm pretty excited that when our boys get to be uh, a little bit older, getting them a 3D printer and uh, hand them a laptop and say, uh, "Make your toy that you wanna, you want me to go buy, like print it, learn how to do it." <laughs> uh, I think that's going to be a lot more beneficial for them in the long run, having some hard skills on how to do stuff like that. Oh yeah, without a doubt. So uh, we talked about how you got into to knife making. Uh, what got you started into doing YouTube and uh, with the, the knife stuff? Well, I, you know, I think a lot of things in life start with kind of exasperation. Um, I mean, one of the things about me is, and, you know, I, I, I don't say this in a look how virtuous kind of way. It's just, it's this is just my personality and my skill set. If you send me an email, I write you an email back. And, you know, I guess probably starting about 2004, 2005, the word kind of started, was starting to get around about my um, Japanese sword work. And I started just getting email after email from people saying, how do you make your hamones? And, you know, I started out by writing these really long emails to people. And then after I'd written this, you know, 50 versions of the same one page email. I I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, I can't spend two hours a week, you know, trying to help people learn something that I'm teaching exactly the same thing to every person. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll go out, I'll get a video camera. I'll make this stupid little video. It'll be about 10 minutes long. Um, you know, just turn the camera on and blab a little bit and show some stuff, turn it off and be done with it. And I can sell these for $10 and uh, I can shut all these people up and, uh, I, you know, make $300 a year on top of it. 
And so being the obsessive, you know, nut that I am, uh, once I got the camera, you know, and the editing software, I was like, man, you could make a whole, you could make, you know, some crazy movie with this thing. Let me, let me make this a little better, you know? And so I made probably about an hour long video about, uh, making Hamones. And I started selling that off of my website and there was some interest in it. Um, so I was like, well, shoot, I'll make another one. So I made a whole series of, of videos about various aspects of Japanese sword making. And, uh, about that time, um, you know, somebody said, Oh, have you seen this thing, YouTube, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, some other stupid social media thing. And then I got on there and I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. You know? And so I, uh, after, you know, maybe a year, I was like, Hey, maybe I could get a account on here and do a couple of little, basically like little advertisements for these videos. And, um, I, that was all I looked at it as was just, I'll just take two minutes of excerpts out of these videos. And then at the end of it, it'll say here, go to waltersorrelsblades.com buy the video. And so I did that. And I mean, I started getting quite large numbers of people watching these things. And I was like, now I know all these people aren't actually buying the videos. They're not even interested in buying the videos. It seemed like maybe they just, they're just kind of, I don't know. They're just, they're just interested in this. And so, uh, you know, I just started making, uh, YouTube videos at that point. So this would have been, I want to say maybe 2009, 2000, probably somewhere in there. So it was real early days of YouTube, you know, just kept cranking along. And again, I was just doing it for free. I mean, I was just doing it because I thought it would sort of be a good little advertisement for Walter, you know? And, um, one day, you know, I, I realized that there was this little button that said monetize. And I thought, well, I'll just try the monetize button. I'll probably make like $12 next month. And, uh, so I hit the monetize button and, um, you know, I made, I don't know, $90 or $140 or something that month. I was like, wow, you know, this is not big money, but I mean, that's nice steak dinner for the wife and me, you know? And so, uh, it just kind of kept going from there and, um, it just sort of snowballed. Very cool. So you said you, uh, what, what, uh, camera did you end up buying? Was that, uh. It was a, it was a Sony, um, uh, mini, uh, mini dat or what not dat, but whatever those little mini cartridges are. So it wasn't, uh, it didn't record to a chip or anything or draw, okay. you know, flash drive or anything. So I used that for a couple years and then, um, you know, when DSLR start, you know, start being able to, to do movies, I was just completely on that. And so I switched over to DSLRs basically as soon as that started to be a possibility. And, uh, so that's, that's what I've used ever since. Nice. And do you have somebody help film with you or is it pretty much all, all you setting up the shots and. I do every damn little bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of work. It's a crazy amount of work. And, um, you know, the nice thing about it is you don't have to do it all at one throw and you can do it at night and stuff. So it's, it fits kind of comfortably in the spot, you know, when it's cold in my shop, you know, I'll work on a video and stuff, but I, I, I still, from the very beginning, I've, 
debated like every time I make a video, which is, you know, about four times a month. Um, I'm like, does this really make sense? Am I really, is this really actually a paying proposition? I mean, not, you know, obviously not from the monetizing side. I can guarantee you I'm not making enough money monetizing these things to make it worthwhile. But, you know, it's kind of an advertising thing. It's kind of a calling card, you know, so I keep feeling like it sort of makes sense to do it. But you know, my, my, my whole theory, I, I probably should back up to say that my whole theory, once I started saying, okay, okay, I'm going to make videos specifically for YouTube, there was such absolute crap on, on YouTube. You know, it used to be you turn on, you know, if you looked for knife making videos or something, some guy would be, well, I know you can't hear me too good, but I, I you know, I got machinery going and the wind's blowing and, uh, but, uh, and I, well, here I'm going to move this camera, you know, and, and uh, the thing would be wobbling all, I know you can't see what I'm doing, but, and there was, there was a lot of stuff like that. That was just, it was like, it was, I, it just pissed me off. I just looked at it. I was like, this is so bad. It's disgraceful. I wouldn't spit on this video. So my goal initially was to be just like a whole order of magnitude better than everything else on YouTube, you know, specifically about knives anyway. So I put a lot of time into the audio. I put time into editing. I put time, you know, I just tried to do everything right and tried to light them as well as I could. Of course, when you're doing it all by yourself, you know, you're not, it's not going to be perfect. And obviously I'm not a trained video videographer or anything, but you know, I, I really did try to make it so that somebody who really wanted to learn something could just come to this place, watch this video, actually see what was going on, actually hear the dude talking and walk away having learned something. So that was my, that was my whole strategy. And, you know, now I, there are a lot of people doing good videos out there, but when I started, I, I really felt like, you know, I was trying to kind of change the game a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've made a couple videos and, they're like 10 minutes long and I probably spent at least 15, 20 hours editing them and oh, yeah. trying to get them to look as good as I could. But just the filming for that 10 minutes, I probably had five or six hours of filming and a lot of it was instantly deleting them because you'd go and say something in front of the camera and you're like, well, that, not good on that one. <laughs> yep, yep. Try again. So, I mean, there's so many ways to screw things up and you know, if, 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 it's kind of the, there's that Instagram model approach to videos, which is just like put the camera on a selfie stick and talk for 45 seconds, which is a valid thing, but it's like geometrically more difficult once you start getting longer than that and start editing things. And you, you know, you're trying to light everything and move, drag these lights around and microphones. And it's just, it's very complicated. You know, there's a reason why, like when you see a Hollywood movie, this, the, the credits scroll on for like, an hour, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are all those people just running around, taped down on the floor, and mm -hmm. sticking up a light over here, and you know, you know, setting up the electrical panel yeah. and all that kind of junk. Yeah, when just uh, doing the edit audio for this podcast, there's a uh, uh, I've learned a ton about editing and EQs and uh, taking out noises and different things, and uh, it's. It's something I didn't think was going to be uh, nearly as uh, steep of a learning curve, but the, the farther you go down the rabbit hole, the more you learn that you uh, don't really know what you're doing. And 
it's been been pretty neat. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the flip side to it. Uh, you know, I sound like I'm complaining about it, but um, you know, I'm just addicted to learning things, and so um, and you making things. You know, so that's that's just Walter in a nutshell: is learn and make, make and learn, learn and make. You know, don't ever clean anything. Don't you know? Don't ask me to make the bed, <laughs> but if, it, if you need me to just make some stuff, I can do that. Otherwise, nice. I'm a complete incompetent at all things in life. Uh, what what kind of advice do you have for someone that wants to start doing some YouTube video stuff? Do you have anything you wish you had done differently with starting out or? No, not really. I mean, you know, two things are, you know, you have to convey your personality, whatever that might be. Um, you know, my approach is kind of didactic and serious. You know, I don't mean that in a stupid way, but you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm earnest, I guess you might say, I'm really trying to make a point, you know, I'm not trying to be the funniest guy on the planet or whatever, but that's just my personality. I, I enjoy teaching people. I enjoy sort of, here's what I'm doing and here's why, and I'm going to explain it in mind numbing detail. And if you don't like it, you know, then, uh, go watch somebody else, you know, but if you're a funny guy, that's great. You know, harness that. Uh, if you're, um, you know, if you have extremely high technical skills, harness that, you know, whatever it is that you're good at, if you can write, write a good script, if you have a beautiful voice, then focus on that. You know, I mean, everybody's got different strengths and you want to play to those and try and be honest with yourself about what you suck at, mm -hmm. you know, and either try and fix that or work around it, you know, and focus on other stuff. Beyond that, two, two main things. One is take the technical stuff seriously. If you, you know, this is not 10 years ago now, you know, stuff does need to be lit right. You know, so you got to go to the trouble of learning your camera. You got to learn about lighting. You got to learn about editing and audio and all that stuff. And just recognize that there is a big learning curve to it. And that sort of leads me to my third point, which is, and this is true of everything in life. You want to do something good. You got to work hard. You got to persist. You got to push through this feeling of like, oh, I'm completely incompetent at this. I have no idea what I'm doing. You got to be willing to push past that and just have faith that you have the capacity to solve your own problem. Yeah, that's very good. Very good advice. When I One of my videos that I recorded for doing my file work, I didn't realize that I had the, the autofocus on and I didn't have any auxiliary microphone stuff. And uh, the entire, when I'm talking, you hear the, the autofocus thing. Goes, <laughs> 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 it's like, well, I get to do that whole video shoot again. So, yeah. And, you know, that's the thing that, that people, uh, you know, will quickly find out once they jump into this stuff is if you're going to do anything other than the, you know, worst quality stuff, um, you just are going to make some mistakes and you're going to really screw up. And that's just part of the, part of the gig, you know, yeah, my, my thing is I, I need to just, I own, I'm an engineer, so I overanalyze stuff a lot and try to try to do so, stuff to the best of my abilities, which is good. But uh, for a lot of my stuff, I just like need to get something. Uh, like with some of my first YouTube video stuff, I'm like, I just need to put something out there. And then uh, with the podcast stuff, what we're we're learning as we're going, and each one's going to get a little bit better. And uh, doesn't have to be the 
the perfect end in goal right off the get-go gotta or building it up well you know it, it is intimidating to you know to put something out there on youtube and feel like hey look they're gonna be a million billion people potentially watching this thing and you feel like if you screw up that you really just um you know, everybody in the world is going to know it. And even to this day, every time I put out a video, I'm always thinking, oh man, did I put something out there that's, you know, going to come back on me in a bad way? Or did I say something stupid or did I, you know, I mean, cause like nobody knows everything about knife making. I don't care how long you've been doing this. There's stuff that you still have to learn. And I mean, I just have to sort of give myself permission to screw up and to talk about stuff that sometimes I don't really know all that much about. And, um, you know, I try to be honest and say, Hey, look, this is something I don't really know all that much about, but here's, here's what I can tell you that I do know. Um, but sometimes I try to talk about stuff that I really don't know enough about. And, um, I, I just know that every now and then I'm going to say something really stupid and, and it's out there forever. <laughs> yeah. What's... But, you know, if, if, if you're so afraid of that, that you can't, that you're paralyzed, then, you know, YouTube is not for you. Yeah. yeah. That was uh, one of the things I was kind of worried about with the, the podcast, but I, I seem to have gotten a little bit over that. Well, you know, the nice thing about being a host is that you can always plead ignorance. You know, you can say, hey, you know, I... I don't know anything about this. Tell me, share with me why, you, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So yeah, that's good. So uh, one of the other questions I had was uh, with YouTube and the, the different anti-gun, anti-knife and weapon stuff on there. Uh, where do you see YouTube going um, in the next couple of years? Do you, do you see uh, still having the, the different gun and knife? And I mean, yours is a little bit different with knife making, but. Uh, I know there have been a bunch of people that have like uh, knife review channels and stuff that said they're it seems like they're kind of getting not promoted nearly as much as they used to be and stuff. Oh, well, without a doubt. I mean, there's there's absolutely not a shadow of a doubt that uh, YouTube changed their algorithms and it happened overnight. I mean, it, you know, it, it first happened, I want to say, April of 2017 i don't know if that if if i'm actually right on that but that's my recollection um so there were a bunch of ads for neo-nazis or something that appeared you know on with some big ad or i mean videos with neo-nazis or whatever that appeared with um uh ads for big companies and the companies when they found out about this they just hit the roof and they crapped all over google uh, you know understandably and you know they said to youtube hey well, this can't happen and so youtube of course completely overreacted and just slaughtered everything that was pointy everything that smelled bad that exploded that uh, you know guns forget it you know they just demonetized everything and um i mean that previous month i had made fourteen hundred dollars you know, on monetized videos, the following month I made $220. Wow. And the income has never come back, you know, 
I mean, not even close to where it was before. And obviously, you know, I'm not living off of, you know, $1,200 a month, but that's, you know, that's a significant little piece of my income pie. So basically, that's probably cost me $25,000 over the past two years. And that's not that's not chicken feed, yeah. and 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 it's completely because YouTube just you know they just said no we're just we're just going to stay as far away from anything conceivably controversial as possible, and you know I'm I'm not super you know hard right wing type guy you know I'm not one of those guys who's always beating the conspiracy theory drum. Uh, but it's just a fact that Google is super liberal mm-hmm. and super committed to, you know, all the crazy, you know, left leaning stuff. And again, I, you know, I, I voted for, you know, Democrats most of my life. I'm, I'm not the guy who's going to be, uh, you know, so, you know, wearing the tinfoil hat on this stuff, but it's very clear that, you know, that YouTube has overreacted, you know, on this, on everything to do with weapons mm-hmm. and they're not going to change. Yeah. And Facebook just, uh, seems like it's a similar way with, uh, them owning Instagram and stuff too. I, I was, I was getting yeah. like a hundred, 150 likes on uh, a lot of my photos and then, right about June of this year. I don't, I don't know if I've been over 50 on most of my, my stuff and I don't feel like I've changed a whole lot, but I don't know if it's how it's getting promoted. Yeah. I mean, the the thing that's frustrating is uh, a, they're not even vaguely transparent about it, but even if they were trying to be, I mean, the reality is they got a billion videos that they're juggling all the time and a a lot of this stuff probably has almost no human intervention they're just there's there's some model that has gotten so complicated they they probably couldn't even really tell you what it does um but it steers things one way or the other and it certainly um has not worked to the benefit of people who you know are interested in firearms or knives or you know anything Mm -hmm. related to that martial arts, yeah. you know, anything. So one of the other questions I had is, uh, you have a great voice. Have you ever thought about doing any voiceover work? Uh, not even vaguely. <laughs> um, I, I've got a buddy who's actually a professional voiceover guy and you turn on the TV and you're going to hear him in five minutes, okay. you know? Um, and I know how much work it takes for him to be at the top of that field. Um, you know, if I could just get out of bed and have people, you know, hit me up with work, I would do it. But uh, it's just like knife making. You got to get out there and hustle if you want business. And uh, I don't really feel like doing that. I, I got enough hustling and for knife making. You know? gotcha. So where where do you see the knife industry going over the next few years? Uh, I uh, can tell you one thing for sure about Walter is Walter is no good at predicting the future. That's uh, that's a skill I have not got. Um, so I, I have no idea. I just, you know, at uh, every every year I go to the blade show and I'm like, huh, look at that. I, I would have never anticipated that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, your guess is as good as mine. It's probably actually your guess is probably way better than mine. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. I seem to not be able to pick what's going to sell. There was 
uh, I took 55 knives this year to blade show work pretty much from January all the way to June. And, uh, if you would have told me that, uh, to put down money on the knives that I thought I was going to guarantee to sell, uh, I still have all those knives. <laughs> so that has to start. Yeah. Sold. Yeah. But I know it's, it's frustrating, but yeah, it's a, the, so I've had a table there the last two years and, uh, my first year I didn't have any pairing knives and, uh, literally like every, every five minutes, uh, somebody would walk by and go, Oh, these are really cool kitchen knives. Do you have any pairing knives? And I was like, no, I don't have any pairing knives this year. So this year I'm like, got to make some pairing knives. So I made, uh, 10 of them and didn't sell any of them. <laughs> a lot of people picked him up and looked at him. Oh, a lot of people picked him up and looked at him, but nobody, uh, nobody bought any. Well, uh, you know, people walk around the tables at the blade show and they pick up this thing and it says $295 or whatever. And they're like, man, this guy must just be swimming in money. And, uh, of course, a, they don't realize how much work goes into a $295 knife. Um, but, uh, also, there's exactly what you're saying is there's just I, I, there was a guy that used to go to um, Japanese sword shows um, <clears throat> and he had like three or four uh, swords that he he brought with him and they were all priced at like 15 grand. And I'd look at him. I mean, I've, the first year or two that I I saw him i was like wow man look at that that's this guy's really got some inventory and then four years later i was seeing all the same swords in this same bag coming out there on the table and i was like well all right then uh as far as i can tell you haven't sold one in the <laughs> since i've met you yeah. uh you know so uh, and, the, and it wasn't that they were bad swords or whatever it's just it's hard to sell fifteen thousand dollar sword and it's you know it's not easy to sell a 200 you know 200 dollar uh handmade knife and anybody who makes 200 dollar handmade knives knows that you're losing money on every single one you sell yeah, or really really hustling to to get any made and in that quality range right right uh that's uh, most of the questions i had uh do you have any other any other things you want to talk to the listeners about or any things you want to promote no no i i think i i think i touched on pretty much everything uh obviously you'll uh you know encourage everybody to go by my uh my uh social media things yeah yeah definitely definitely hit up walter sorrell's blade and uh, we'll have all the links to his uh, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and uh, Tactics Armory, and his website and stuff in the the show notes. And um, yeah, he's a very very good YouTube channel. If you guys haven't checked it out, it's, uh, there's a lot of lot of good info there for knife makers and people that are just enthusiasts too. One of the things that we forgot to talk about was Walter's Patreon channel. If you guys haven't checked that out, please check that out and support him on Patreon to help him keep those awesome YouTube videos coming. Well, it was a great pleasure to be on with you and, uh, you know, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Yeah. Uh, I'll definitely, uh, are you usually at blade show every, uh, every year? Yeah. I mean, I actually live about, you know, 
30 minutes, I mean, 30 uh, feet away from uh, where the Blade Show is uh, is hosted. I, I'm being a little facetious, but really it takes me about 20 minutes to drive down there. So I'm always there. I actually have never had a booth there. I've never had enough inventory to justify having a, a table, but um, but I'm always there. I wander around and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm always, uh, you can hit me up on social media or whatever and all right. I'll try to try to see if we can meet up next year. Excellent. Look forward to it. Yeah, I'll, I'll be uh, down there. I've got a my table's going to or if they if they keep it the same way it's been, I'm right in between uh, Nicholas Impregnated Wood and Phoenix Abrasives. Okay. Uh, two two huge stands on either side of my table where I was last year. And we'd like to thank Dragonfly Breedworks for their sponsorship of this podcast. And uh, glad to have them on. Uh, John Kaufman is a great guy. And uh, make sure you check out his knives. Like I said, he, they've got some awesome, uh, very unique pin out. So make sure to check those out. You guys can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. All of the, the show notes and stuff are there. You can listen to the show directly from there. And you can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Tuned In Radio. And if there's uh, one that uh, we should be on that we're not, let us let me know, and we'll uh, try to get that remedied as soon as possible. And if you can leave a, a review on each of those things that would help us get found by a lot more people and any uh, anything you could do to promote the show is greatly appreciated. Dan is uh, having his uh, bicep reattached. and uh, Dan, we hope you get feeling better and get back so uh, you can join us on the podcast soon. You can find his stuff at dogwoodcustomknives.com and uh, Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And you can get in touch with me, cagedailyknives.com and cagedailyknives on Facebook and Instagram. And the email address is kyle at cagedailyknives or kyle at knifeperspective.com. It was a great having you on, Walter, and uh, look forward to, to getting to see you in person sometime. Thanks, Kyle. Really had a lot of fun. Well, let's take it to the edge, because that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're going to talk about.